Hi, this is Beth AQ, and this is the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. The Glass House is a space for spoken word artists, poets, sound makers, audio storytellers, emerging cultural leaders, thinkers, writers, and anyone who celebrates story as a means of self-expression, self-representation, and community building. I hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website. Today and every day we broadcast on stolen unceded lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung peoples who've cared for this land and told stories on and of this land since time immemorial. I pay my respects to Elders past and present and extend that respect to Elders of the lands that you might be on today. It always was and it always will be Aboriginal land. Coming up on the show today, I've got two great interviews that I'm very excited about. I'll be joined by award-winning podcast producer and academic Siobhan McHugh, who's just released her book called The Power of Podcasting. And in it, she blends her her lessons learnt from her decades as an audio storyteller alongside a critical analysis of the industry at large. It is peppered with case studies of notable podcasts, many of which I'm sure you will recognise, and it gives a history of the form and looks forward to see what's next for podcasting. And later in the show, I'm very excited to welcome back to the Glass House Black and Bright First Nations Literary Festival Director Jane Harrison to speak about their program that they have just announced. It is a festival that celebrates First Nations stories, books and writers from across NAM, uh, Australia and internationally. And this program features some old favourites from events past uh, and also a bunch of new events, and both in person and online. There's a bunch of household names that are programmed this year, like Tony Birch, Nadi Simpson, Alexis Wright, uh, and many more I'm sure you will be familiar with. Coming up next, I'm going to be joined by Siobhan McHugh to talk all about her new book about podcasting. You are listening to Triple R. It's a pleasure to have your company this afternoon. Audio storytelling has been central to First Nations cultures since time immemorial, but in the last couple of decades, we've really seen interest in audio storytelling boom, with podcasts becoming a staple in our audio diet. From its roots in radio, podcasts have become a distinct digital-first offering with millions of people listening each day. And here in Australia, we've seen the culture of producing and listening change dramatically in the last decade. Peppered with case studies of notable podcasts, The Power of Podcasting is a new book uh, by award-winning podcast producer and academic Siobhan McHugh that traces this history, critiques the present and looks towards the future of the form and the industry. Siobhan, welcome to The Glass House. Thanks for your time. Thanks very much, Beth. Great to be here. Uh, It's a pleasure to have you on. Siobhan, you know, this book uses your experience as a producer of many decades to inform this analysis of both the form and the industry at large. Tell me, how did you first come to work in audio? I just fell into it, really. (laughs) I actually did science at uni and I got annoyed with the lack of attention paid at the time to things like ethics and philosophy and environmentalism. So I sort of fell into journalism through that and started my own magazine and then went on to do arts journalism and met music people. 
And then a job offer just came up and I applied for it. And I was one of 2000 at the time. And they took on 10 cadets out of that 2000. And I was lucky enough to be taken on at RTE, the Irish public broadcaster. And I got trained up there. Mm. I mean, I think your experience speaks to that of many producers that kind of have quite a varied background before coming into podcasting. I suppose just before we go any further, when we talk about podcasts, you know, depending on your listening habits, we can mean all kinds of podcasts. So I suppose just so we're on the same page, can you describe, um, I suppose, the various kinds of podcasts that are out there that people listen to? Okay, well, the big ubiquitous one is what Julie Shapiro, who used to work in Australia, is now at Radiotopia, she christened the Chum Cast, which is where two chums or pals or three or four riff off a theme. And it could be anything. It could be last week's episodes of Succession or it could be a shared passion for something political or whatever it might be. It could be cricket. And that's a chum cast slash chat cast. And that is everywhere. And it's, you know, it's very enjoyable listening. There's no doubt about that. And the thing is that the hosts often feel like your friend. Mm. So that's one. And then there is the crafted audio storytelling type, which is what I love, be it fiction or nonfiction. And in the nonfiction zone, that can range from really, um, you know, intense investigative journalism transposed into audio narrative through to more kind of memoirish sort of things. And I love all of that range. And then you have those big monologic things like um, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, and they do tend to be hosted by white men. I mean, it's extraordinary when I started to look at them. <laughs> and uh, and then you have kind of the artier, more poetic end of things, which again is where my heart lies. But mm. it's, if you like, it is what art house film is to the film world. It is to the podcast world. I think mm. I've covered most of them there. Yeah, I think that's a, I mean, but you are, you're representing the spectrum that um, is available within this medium. Something that you do in this book is you really pull back the curtain of what it means to be an audio producer and the impact that producers have on the stories that we tell. You know, I think people often underestimate the role of the producer and how much um, say they have and, and the editorial decisions that kind of go into creating stories. I'm interested, you know, you really do um, highlight your experience as a producer. What do you see as your role as a producer when crafting audio stories? Basically, whether it's working with my own content or more recently with other people's content, I'm shaping the story and the structure to work the best way it can through sound. So harnessing the strengths of the audio medium. Mm -hmm. And that is different. The story will be told differently than if it were told in a long form magazine format or as a book or as a film or a TV thing. And, and this sounds so apparent to me over the last few years that so many non-audio people out there with the best will in the world don't understand or, dare I say, respect enough <laughs> 
what audio is about. And that is the key to making good audio. You have to understand the medium you're dealing with. Mm. I mean, I think it's a common, uh, I don't know if it's a myth, but, you know, everybody can make a podcast. This is what's kind of told by a lot of people that it is something that everyone can do. And in many respects, yes, if you can record on your smartphone, um, you can make a podcast, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be good and it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be listened to. You know, this is something that you detail a lot in the book. When we talk about good audio, I think there are a few key things that we think about. What are they? Okay, so first of all, um, as I just said, respect the audio. So intimacy is a word most often associated with audio and podcasting, and it's what really propels it. It's what generates that really effective connection we all feel. But it is directly related to how like somebody up. So if you've got somebody sitting at the end of a table and you've just got a, an iPhone on the table somewhere and there's a vague sense of that voice uh, coming from the other side of the room, you're actually squandering half the power that you could get if you were up close with the mic a hand span away from that person's mouth, assuming that they're all on board for talking to you, you know, of course. And, and it's little things like that that, you know, I mean, we all respect cinematographers and uh, the work of film directors, but that all seems to go out the window and people don't realise that similar things apply to audio, just they have to be um, adapted to the form. So basically, first of all, I don't want to make it sound like it's highly technical because I'm not a highly technical person. I'm, I can't even open a milk carton. I, I sort of ruin them, you know. Um, but I have mastered enough of the basics to enable me to do that okay. So you need, you know, to get the voice um, well um, recorded, you need to understand that writing for audio is economical. It doesn't lend itself to long, rambling, paragraphy kind of stuff. Um, and you need to speak the way, you need to write the way that you speak, so conversationally. So even just simple things like it is um, 10 past 10, and instead of saying it's 10 past 10, if you do that endlessly, it really makes everything sound stiff and formal and it kind of puts up a barrier to that connection you're looking for. And that was something I had to work on with people like the age journalists who were all great writers, but they were not used to writing for audio. Mm -hmm. So that, and then the other thing is, don't just think of words and voice, think of sound itself as a way of telling story. So whether it's just the simple little meta scenes we're all used to now, somebody closes the door, knocks on the on the bell, uh, go, knocks on the door, goes to interview somebody, but they all kind of animate and ground something and make the, trigger the imagination and get us starting to think visually, which sounds in, uh, mm. contradictory, but it's actually what happens. No, absolutely. I can definitely relate to that as a listener. I think that for me, that is the power of audio is that, you know, you can listen with your eyes shut and you can kind of co-create the story with what you're hearing because you do, you use your imagination. And, you know, that's why I think it's been long loved for many, many years. Um, Siobhan, you know, you do reflect on the kind of historical roots of audio storytelling through, you know, public radio. Um, there's obviously strong kind of foundational ties to the um, public service journalism, public service radio, particularly in the States. Can you speak a little bit about that history and how you think it informs what we hear today? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, podcasting for most people uh, splits into a pre-serial and a post-serial world. And it was like 
remarkable for, for those of us who are around long before serial to see how suddenly everybody wanted to know what we'd been doing all those years that they hadn't really cared tuppence about. Uh, and serial came straight. Serial was the big hit that broke the internet um, and was the first sort of serialized nonfiction storytelling to be put out there as an audio podcast. And it came from the stable of This American Life. And that is now well known that in 1995, Ira Glass, the host, broke away from the conventions of NPR, public radio storytelling or journalism, because he found it was too constricting and he wanted to humanize the news. Mm -hmm. And he had such success with This American Life that enabled him to sort of have the luxury of experimenting with Serial. And then Serial begat other kinds of interesting narrative journalism. Radiolab was coming along in its own way, being incredibly inventive and spawning all kinds of other new things. Meanwhile, um, I mean, the, the, the AB, the B, sorry, the um, US people were actually late to the party, if you take the long view of global audio mm -hmm. storytelling, which begins really, you know, with the BBC people experimenting beautifully in the 1930s and doing things that wouldn't be out of place today and going through to the 50s. And then Europe comes on board with really artistic, imaginative, deeply, uh, deeply realized productions once the portable tape recorder comes in. So you have all these influences, but they're in little silos and they're not influencing each other that much. I do document how they speak to each other a bit. And then, you know, come to the age of the internet, Third Coast Audio Festival appears on the horizon in 2000, and it just coalesces all of that energy and passion and cross-fertilizes. And I think things really take off from there, mm -hmm. and the heyday starts to arrive for audio storytelling. So public radio is hugely part of it in terms of both the sense of mission and the sense of execution. But now there are lots of other interesting people playing in the podcast pond. Mm. I think uh, for any audio producers listening, I think the, it's a familiar tale. You know, people, when Serial came about, it was as much a marketing exercise almost for what podcasts can be as it was the um, uh, the, the actual show itself. I felt like it was such an important offering for thinking about how people engage with the medium. Um, Siobhan, you know, a large part of your work over the past decade has not only been as a producer, but as um, somebody that is really trying to cultivate more critical analysis around the form. You know, you've created Radio Doc Review, which asks audio makers from across the world to review um, different audio offerings. I'm interested in how you've seen that kind of critical language around audio stories change um, during this time. Well, it's wonderful. Actually, that is one of the most satisfying things that has come out of the podcasting boom for me personally. Um, Radio Doc Review did predate Serial. Uh, it, I had, I had actually had that idea, that frustration that we didn't have the language had been there once I started doing my own academic work on this, and to see not everybody who makes audio can write well about what they do so that's the first thing They're different things i mean i don't think if you were to ask fellini to to explain what he does he might be he might be able to do it very well he just is a brilliant filmmaker you know but when you go in there are people at the intersection michelle macklem is one of them um i know she's involved with 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 a lot of what you do um and she is both a great producer uh, and sound uh, person who can also stand back and detachedly analyze and critique and she 
wrote one of the critiques of Love and Radio for us, which was great. Um, Alan Hall is another from the UK Falling Tree stable, which incubates so much beautiful, amazing, emerging talent. And they're very generous about that himself and Eleanor McDowell. And uh, Alan is very poetic he's a composer a bit like Jad Abumrad mm. and he comes from a different place he doesn't come from that journalistic place he speaks from the heart but he also has this rigorous intellectual background and it all comes into play in his writing and I think it's just I know that when we got him to do the first review Children of Sodom and Gomorrah which is a very complex piece from a German guy about refugees kids in Africa it's very complex and I spoke to the, the, you know, Jens who made it afterwards, and he was just bowled over. He said, I have so much respect for Alan to get his take. He's made me stop and think about things I didn't even realize I was doing. Mm. And so that's what's so important, because that can advance the form. We can all benefit from that. And I have come up against, I mean, it, I have asked people to write reviews, and they've said, no, I don't want to do that, because I don't want to say mean things. I don't want to say negative things. And I understand that because it is a small group and there is this friendly kindred spirit sort of feeling towards everybody. But in the end, it's not helpful. You know, when I think about how I have improved, it's always this, the people who were game enough to tell me the stuff I needed to hear. And I, I have ended up, I didn't ever resent them. I mean, I might have, might have purchased so um, I think that is really, and I love the way that has grown and, and there are other people doing podcast criticism and we see serious people in The New Yorker as well mm. taking it seriously now. Um, so so that's really important to, mm. to mature podcasting. I couldn't agree more. I think that, you know, if you look at different art forms, having criticism of it is such a part and parcel of the industry. And as you said, I think it adds strength to be able to think critically and to be able to situate people's work within what's going on uh, internationally uh, and also locally. You know, I suppose when we are looking towards the future of podcasting, which is, I suppose, what we're talking about, you know, I think this like critical language around audio is only growing, which is, is very exciting. You know, I think... It's interesting looking for the towards the future. You know, in your book, you talk um, or you reference um, Eric Newsom, who was the former vice president of programming at NPR, and he's really speaking about. Um, when we're looking in the future, there's kind of this potential playoff between the reach, your audience reach and revenue. I'm interested in how you see that and, and potentially what you see playing out in the next few years. Mm. Well, this is very topical now, given the Joe Rogans. Mm. Um, and look, I think that, I mean, the, the monetizing end of podcasting has never really been my my biggest concern. You know, I am lucky enough, if you like, to be over in in the place of more community-originated storytelling and public broadcaster-originated storytelling. So if you like, I've been lucky in that I haven't had to rely on it as a primary source of income. So I know that that might sound a bit self-indulgent. But I think, I mean, I, maybe I'm naive, but I just feel really that the true power of audio is its intimacy, and you cannot industrialize that and falsify it and monetize it if you're coming from a, if you're trying to do that you know you're you're really gone to the dark side and I don't wish you well if that's <laughs> where you've ended up you know and um 
I, I, I really think that if, 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 if Joe Rogan, you know, is taking people down the path of walled gardens, mm. I think that's really bad for the spirit of podcasting. Dave Weiner invented the RSS feed back in 2001. He's a lovely geeky sort of guy. I just listened to him on a podcast called Internet History, and he deliberately made it open access mm. because he wanted it to be in the spirit of an open democratic ethos. He could have made money out of it. He didn't. He didn't. He didn't. I mean, he made something out of but he hasn't made a lot of money. And, you know, I think that to, you know, to subvert that and kind of prostitute yourself to Spotify is disgusting, actually. Mm. Um uh, you know, but I don't think we need to care. When I say we, I mean those of us who make podcasts from a place of passion, because even if you have a small listenership, and even though we know there are now three million podcasts out there, you can still target your listening community and have impact and importance and significance in who you reach you know i've done work with aboriginal artists and i'm under no illusions that we're getting mega listeners but the people who do listen in those communities and outside them are deeply affected um, and it does have meaning and resonance so i think i'm rambling a bit here because the big end of town is not my normal domain i'm first to admit that i mean um, uh, but but I think that um, there will be pushback mm. to this notion. There was a beautiful blog by James T. Green against the industrialization of empathy at, at Gimlet, who are now under Spotify's umbrella. And I thought, good on him. And he walked away from it. Mm. And people mm. like him, they're actually writing something for Radio Doc Review, he and some of his colleagues, um, which is which is looking at more innovative ways of thinking about podcasting and taking control and keeping artistic control for ourselves and not being at the behest of the big moguls mm. and the big platforms. I say this a bit a bit tongue-in-cheek because the latest podcast I'm working on, which is coming out on the 15th of February, The Greatest <laughs> Menace, which is hosted by Patrick Abud and produced by him and Simon Kunick, is an amazing queer true crime story, and it mm. is going on Audible. But I think I'm allowed to say this, the first six months will be free, mm -hmm. free access. So even though it's on Audible and they have been very supportive, six months access because of its innate importance and getting it out there to the community. So there are ways around, there are ways of dealing with the corporates um, other than kind of completely selling your soul for for, 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 the, for the big buck. Mm. Some, uh, another example that you touch on towards the end of the book is um, Looking at the Weight, which was a really incredible um, podcast that was made by uh, Nicole Kirby um, with, uh, I've totally forgotten uh, her co-creator's name, um, but, you know, that kind of collaborative mode of making, I think, I feel like I'm seeing it pop up more. And again, it's kind of not big end of town, but I think it is, um, it's showing a way forward for um equitable um, storytelling and making sure that the people who are telling the stories are kind of at the forefront um, of the decision making. And I think that's kind of changing the way that we're thinking about, about creating. Do you see uh, that as a, as something that will kind of take off perhaps more in the next few years? I absolutely do. So in Denmark, their arts council equivalent has for years funded what they call oral literature, A-U-R-A-L, and that's audio-based uh, works like people like Ricky Hood does, H-O-U-D, she's a great artist. Um, audio literary reportage 
as a subject is being developed at New York University as we speak. And a lot of universities are starting to take this in the same way that literary journalism took mm. off in the 60s and 70s and again in the 2000s with people like Anna Funder and Susan Orlean. I think there's a new wave of long-form journalism coming and artists artists, writers' voices coming through in audio that will gain support. I know that Creative Victoria do support some initiatives like this, which is great. Um, and I think foundations will start. I was used to run an audio fellowship at the Varuna Writers' Centre back in a few years back, and that was terrific. Um, so I think there will be more of a push to get decent funding, which in turn is key to having the space to give equal weight to um, contributors to have ownership of their material mm -hmm. as the weight did. You know, it was a collaborative model that was beautifully executed. And the same with Bird's Eye View, the, mm -hmm. the one in Darwin Women's Prison, yeah. um, which is also a fantastic example. And, you know, that took two years and there are 70 women's stories in there. And... It takes that sort of time. So that's what people need to understand. You know, one figure that I've heard is 46,000 US dollars a year. It uh, Sorry, per hour of podcast it took to make the podcast My Only Story, which was about a man in South Africa trying to hunt down the, the person who had assaulted him when he was at school. Um, and, and I'm hearing similar kinds of money here for really good investigative journalism. So if you if you have a six hour series, uh, six hour series, you know, do do the maths. That's about two hundred thousand dollars at least mm. to make that. So don't think you can just throw 10 grand at somebody and get a brilliant podcast. Mm. You won't. It is. It's important to think about the practicalities of what it means to create these works. Um, Siobhan, before I let you go, you know, this book is called The Power of Podcasting. Ultimately, I suppose, if you had to pin down that magic, you know, you might have probably already touched on it. But what for you, I suppose, as a listener and as a maker, um, is that um, magic of audio? Uh, for me, it's, it's, it's definitely those buzzwords of uh, empathy, intimacy, connection, triggering the imagination, immediacy, taking us right there, and that feeling of really knowing somebody and having a kind of authenticity in sharing their experience that, mm. that audio can, can give you because you are also not um, subject to whatever preconceptions or biases you may have, conscious or unconscious. That's what's, they're stripped out by the nature of audio. And so you're residing only in the sense of the sensory and the imagination and the heart kind of subject to the to the intellect but they're all playing in the same space mm, I love that the heart of the intellect uh Siobhan McHugh uh, thank you so much for your time this afternoon it's been a pleasure chatting with you it's been great thanks Beth thank you very much uh, just chatting there with Siobhan McHugh, who is an award-winning podcast producer, academic and writer, speaking all about the power of podcasting. It's her new book. It's out now through UNSW Press. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. 
That's right. You are on Triple R. The Glass House is the name of this show. Black and Bright is a First Nations literary festival based here in Nam. Established in 2016, uh, the festival showcases and celebrates the, diver- the diverse expressions of First Nation writers and covers all genres from or- um, oral stories to epic novels, comedy, plays and poetry. Uh, and with the belief that black stories are for everyone, they are back in 2022 with over 60 First Nations artists programmed. Uh, I'm thrilled to be joined today by the descendant of the Murawari People Award winner writer um, and festival director of Black and Bright, Jane Harrison. Jane, welcome back to The Glass House. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Beth. Great to be with you. Uh, it's always a pleasure chatting with you. Jane, I know this is the the third festival for Black and Bright. I'm, I'm super thrilled to hear that it's back. It's always um, a, a must on the literary calendar. You know, it was established back in 2016, I believe. Can you tell me a bit about how it first began? Yeah, uh, well, it wasn't my bright idea. Uh, I can't take credit for that. But uh, a couple of the writing organisations in at the Wheeler Centre, Melbourne Writers Festival, the Wheeler Centre and Emerging Writers Festival, um, had got together to, uh, you know, wanting to do something in the First Nations space. And they advertised for someone to uh, direct that first festival and I took the role on. And together we worked to uh, we worked with all the organisations in at the Wheeler Centre, and we put the first festival on in uh, February, I think it was. The first one was back in 2016. That was a few years ago. How is uh, how has it changed over the last couple of years? Yeah, I think when we thought about putting a new festival on in 2022, we needed to think what's changed and what hasn't changed. And I'm pleased to say that I think a lot has changed in the in the landscape, especially with black writers. Um, uh, on opening night, we're going to be um, talking a little bit about what's changed and what hasn't changed. And one of the things we can highlight is how many new writers are now being published. And I think that's really exciting. Mm. We've got images of over 200 um, books that have been published since 2019. And that number of authors is growing all the time. So that's one of the positive things Mm. that's changed. Um, Yeah, and in all sorts of genres, not just um, novelists, but um, people writing about... Lots of different areas, including architecture and design, and uh, oh, I, I just you know I'm <laughs> overwhelmed by actually the the the, the different um, um, books published in all the different genres. It's just so incredible. It is incredibly exciting, um, you know, just as a as a punter to see this festival lineup. There's so much um, that is going on. Um, yeah, the architecture I was like very intrigued by. I think that's really exciting. You know, an event that uh, stood out to me was uh, the one about William Cooper's legacy, um, which I don't know, I feel like some people don't know much about that history, unfortunately. Can you maybe touch on that and touch on, you know, who is William Cooper um, and a little bit about this event? Yeah, look, I was really... um wanting to sort of make William Cooper better known. I think within the Aboriginal community, he's an icon, he's a hero. Um, He was an activist all his life. He grew up on the Cummeragunja mission there and uh, learnt activism in the schoolhouse there. Um, And he was an activist his whole life, including he was the first 
um, person to protest against Kristallnacht, um, the atrocities against the, the Nazis were um, directing towards Jewish people in Europe. And he walked from his house in Footscray to the German embassy in, I think, 1938 or 36. Um, Sorry, my history is not fantastic. Um, to protest against um, uh, what the, the Jews were suffering in Europe at the time, and he's been um, recognised by the Jewish community. In fact, he has a forest um, in Israel uh, planted with uh, eucalyptus trees in his honour. Mm. So, yeah, but he did all sorts of other acts of activism as well. He did a petition to the to the king at that time, protesting against how Aboriginal people were being treated, mm. and he wasn't ever able to present that to the king. Mm. I, yeah, I think it... I mean, it, it's very exciting that I think the festival is highlighting these, you know, very local histories um, so that, you know, more and more people can learn. Uh, you know, I, for one, am very excited about at that event and so many on the program. Uh, Jane, I know that... With this festival program, you have um, included some kind of uh, events that were favourites from years past, and of course, there's new things. When you're uh, thinking about the kind of curation of the program, how do you decide um, what stays and and perhaps what needs to shift? Mm, yes, that's a really hard question because there's so <laughs> many other other um, aspects of Aboriginal culture and life and um, contemporary uh, politics and things like that. It's hard to include everything, but then we've got material left for the next festival, which is always great. Um, yeah, I think it's just trying to, uh, you know, have a smorgasbord of, you know, that covers the scope. I mean, I read through all the biogs on the website yesterday. We launched yesterday, and I read through the biogs in full, just proofreading, and I was just blown away just by what um, our artists um, contribute to modern Australian life in so many areas. And, you know, yes, they write, but they also are company directors. They're on boards. They're um, working with young people in out-of-home care. They're curators. They're visual artists and performers. They're, they're just doing multiple things. I think we're Aboriginal people are the original, you know, um, triple threat, mm. you know, because we're not just singing, dancing and writing, but we're, um, you know, contributing to to our, our bigger, the bigger picture um, in so many different ways. Absolutely. And, you know, I think this program is, as you said, such a testament to that. There are so many different types of um, of storytellers, you know, obviously people doing so many different things in different pockets of the communities. But, um, yeah, but if, as you said, storytelling across a range of um, genres and form. Um, one of the events that I'm really excited about is called Borrow a Living Book. And it's where you sit down with an elder um, who will share a story of their lived experience you know, an incredibly, what, what a valuable uh, experience and, and amazing programming. Can you tell me a little bit about, um, a, a little bit about yes. that? Yes, that's one of my favourites. I've always loved the idea of being able to sit down with an elder. Mm. I mean, how many times in life do we get that privilege to mm. sit down in an intimate setting and have, you know, a cup of tea and a scone, native ingredient scone at Mabu Mabu, but to sit down with an elder and have that un in 
uninterrupted time with them, for them to share an aspect of their lives. And our elders this year, as always, have had, you know, such rich lives and have so much to contribute and uh, and to tell, really, the stories that they've got. And, um, you know, I know Uncle Larry Walsh, who's always um, a favourite of ours. Mm. He is an oral storyteller and he that's where he puts all his passion into that oral storytelling but the others are equally as good and interesting as well. And we've got one more person who's not on the program at the moment, but um, he's agreed to join us. And that's mm. Telgium uh, Edwards, who's a fascinating person as well and a great storyteller. Mm. Yeah, I think it just is such a, you know, it's an invaluable experience. When I think of uh, literary festivals, I often think of... Uh, people on a stage um it's in a quite a formal setting um and i think being able to learn in different spaces which i think is exactly what this um, program offers you know just the concept of sitting down with somebody um and you know there's no kind of power dynamic with somebody on a stage but it's it's a different it's a different form of respect and it's a you know you're obviously listening to them as they're speaking but um i think breaking out of what I think of when I think of, of different literary festivals, it's so important for the ways that we think about knowledge sharing um, and and listening. Yes, exactly right. And I think at the other end of that, um, where we have the Young Kent Embassy and having six activists there who are able to give their 10-minute, really passionate, um, uh, you know, speeches really on things that are important to them and obviously there's a lot of young Aboriginal people in the activism space mm. so gathering that group of young people together and giving people the opportunity to also respond to what they have to say so they give 10 minute talks or speeches and then we've got 20 minutes for that discussion to happen as arising out of that and again I think it breaks down the barriers mm. between us and them um, I think it's really, um, you know, just a, an amazing opportunity. And, you know, nearly every one of our events is free. The um, sitting down with the elders is not, um, but most of the others are, are free. And so we, we try to prevent any barriers to accessibility. Yeah, and I think that's uh, it's an amazing part of the festival, meaning that if you're listening right now and you're interested in going, you should definitely check out the website and, and see. I mean, the hardest part is probably picking what to go to. Um, I just want to touch on another um, event just because, there, there, I mean, there are so many parts to it that I'd love to talk about. But um, the Walking Country, um, Walking Birarung, I think is another example of kind of, I suppose, breaking the the mould of perhaps what traditionally you might think of when you think of educational spaces, at least in, you know, I'm thinking of predominantly white um, educational institutions. I think breaking out of that and having people walk around, having a, having a tour, actually being outside, engaging um, with mm. the country that we're on, it just feels, it's in some ways so simple, but it's so, uh, it's so important to kind of take... Profound. Yeah, it, yeah. it really is. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the, the Walking Country uh, event? Yes, well, I was privileged to go. I've been on the walk myself a couple of times, and Dean Stewart is an amazing storyteller, and he has... You'll never look at the river the same way again, mm. really. I think he points out signs of, um, you know, before first contact that are still evident 
in the river. And so, you know, we're in this cityscape with tall buildings everywhere and bridges and everything like that, but you can still see the remnants of where Aboriginal people passed from one side of the river to the other um, on that walk. And he's um, he's very visual, visual as well, so he has photographs of, um, uh, you know, uh, first contact um, images and uh, landscapes that were were painted and drawn at that to- at those early times of um, in the 1830s when Melbourne was first settled and so you can compare those views from then and to now and and you know he also talks about language he talks about how the river was used and who used it it's just a really fascinating talk mm. yeah I'm really thrilled to have it part of our program. There's as so well m- as all the, the yeah. usual literary events that we yeah. do, of course. Sorry, I should have touched We do our in conversations. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you've got the amazing Alexis Wright. Uh, you've got Tony Birch. Um, you know, an, just an incredible lineup. I'm, I'm, I'm very excited to attend. Um, Jane, just before I let you go, uh, you know, this year it's it's a hard. It's it's been a, a weird start to the year. I noticed that you do have, um, you know, in person. You also have some kind of online events. How important was that kind of consideration when you were putting together the program? Yes, well, nine months ago when we were first designing the program, we we saw many of our contemporary um, events having to be cancelled or, um, you know, pivot at the last minute. And so we started right back then planning for three different kinds of festival. One was a fully live festival, one was a fully online festival, and the third was a hybrid festival. And I guess what we're doing is that hybrid festival, really, mm-hmm. um, with room to wriggle if we have to go to fully online. We're hoping not to. We're hoping to be live because I think there's nothing like being in the same space mm-hmm. as the artists and, you know, just the atmosphere of that as well. But, um, yeah, we've tried to think of all the different permutations and that's really hard because Mm. things change, as we all know, changes week to week. Absolutely. So... Well, you've put together an extraordinary program. Um, so, yeah, just incredible offerings and it's always just such a pleasure to talk with you. Um, Thanks so much for your time today, Jane. Thank you, Beth. Pleasure. And come along. Absolutely. Love to see you there. Come up and say hello. I definitely will. I'll be walking around with a sort of a glazed look on my face. <laughs> I think that's very understandable. Uh, just talking there with Jane Harris, who is the Black and Bright First Nations Literary Festival Director. Um, amazing events. You can head to their website at blackandbright.com.au to view the whole program. So it's time for me to get out of here. You're listening to Triple R. This is Beth AQ. Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at Bethany AQ or the Triple R website.